Song number 17, Brother Eddie has selected and chosen, and we'll use that a bit later in the service this evening. As was mentioned previously, we are delighted and thankful that no doubt each of us have been given the health that we have and that we have been allowed the opportunity to assemble this evening and offer worship to, of course, our Creator and the marvelous wonder of the blessing that He has given us in His Son. The opportunity of that, in fact, is certainly a highlight of the week, and each of us, perhaps, can appreciate that blessing and look forward to a week of service in His name by virtue of the blessing that He has bestowed upon us today. It would perhaps again be well to extend to the congregation a word of appreciation for your support of those events at McClellan Avenue the other evening. The attendance, uh, Brother Jonathan shared with me that 71 members from the Pippin congregation were present last Sunday, last Wednesday evening. That, of course, not only devotes most importantly to your desire to assemble to worship, not as if the particular place it seems to matter, it's just that you love the Lord in that way, and that is exceedingly commendable. Tonight, as we continue our study in the book of 1 Samuel, we've, of course, come to the point where the end of that study, of course, isn't that far in the future. The Bible Bowl competition is now very near. Two weeks from yesterday, I believe, is the actual date of the competition. And so our youngsters, as they are continuing their study the last few days, the last couple of weeks, we too will be closing our study of 1 Samuel in the not too far distant future. The study of 1 Samuel to this point in an exceedingly brief way has led us through a consideration of just a few matters that might be summarized like this. We have not only been introduced to Eli, to Samuel, to Saul, to David, as well as to another less notable figures like Doeg and others. But along that way, we have noticed the activities of each of these. And on the one hand, we have seen some godliness. And on the other hand, we have seen some wickedness. And the same also will be true tonight. On the last occasion, we had in fact concluded chapter 19 in that series of studies. And that brings us really to where we're ready to begin our study this evening. Goliath has now been defeated, chapter number 17. In chapter number 18, we again rather quickly noted the success and the friendship that developed between Jonathan and, and David. In chapter 19, in preparation for tonight, we noticed the jealousy of Saul had reached epic proportions. He had begun to eye David. He had begun to desire him to be dead. And with that, chapter number 20 opens before us tonight. As always, at least the approach that I have taken, I'd like us to consider briefly the historical sketch that's found in these three chapters, 20, 21, and 22, and then we'll devote the remainder of the evening to at least a few lessons that you and I might be able to consider from them. As the last lesson ended, you'll notice that jealousy had driven Saul to pursue David, and in that pursuit we notice the evil actions... And all that went with it had led David to flee for his own life. And he ultimately had came to where Samuel was. As all of that took place, the curtain of chapter number 20 opens in the following fashion. David, as he had met with Jonathan, we notice that there was already a sincere, distinct feeling within Jonathan that maybe things were not quite as bad as David perceived them to be. Maybe Jonathan would be able to persuade his father. Maybe he would be able to convince him. Maybe he would actually find that matters were not as filled with hate toward David as had been previously considered. 
And so it was that in a time of discussion, the two of them agreed on the following plan of action. Jonathan was supposed to, in essence, examine the nature of his father's beliefs. He was to find out by way of conversation how Saul actually felt toward David and whether or not there might be hope for some kind of at least meager, peaceful existence between them. Once he found out what that was to be, he was to notify David secretly of it by using a boy and three arrows. Depending on how those arrows, in fact, landed in the field, David was to be able to conclude whether or not he would be able to return in safety to the palace and to the confines of Saul, or whether he would, in fact, need to flee for safety of his own life. As the particular conversation developed, Jonathan, in fact, did speak with his father. But the conversation did not go well. In fact, it went in such a terribly bad fashion that Saul became angry. He, in fact, became furious with his son. He couldn't believe that his son Jonathan was going to forfeit his own right to the throne by, in fact, maintaining a friendship with David. As the events of that conversation developed, in fact, Saul even tried to take the life of his own son. We have seen earlier that he threw a spear not once but twice at David. He also threw a spear at his own son Jonathan. With that event, Jonathan knew that his father was not to be persuaded. He knew he was not to be led to an appreciation in any sense of David. And therefore, we notice in the next few verses that he signaled to David in the way that previously had been decided upon, using the arrows and the lad. And with that signal, David knew that it was not to be for him to return peacefully at that time to exist with Saul. David thus fled. He was not welcomed in the palace. He wasn't welcomed in that particular region for David. Rather, was one sought for and pursued by Saul. It was for that reason that chapter number 21 opens. David fled to a little region known as Nob in Ob. Chapter number 21 then brings us to this appreciation that David came to this location. And as he came here, by this point, of course, David having been on the run, he was without supplies. He and his men did not have sufficient means whereby they needed food or other particular matters. Thus, when he came to this location, David asked the priest for some supplies. And the specific thing for which he asked was bread. He wanted, in fact, to inquire about the existence of that so that he and those few with him would be able to have bread for sustenance. The priest, whose name was Ahimelech, was quick to reply that he didn't have any common bread. He did, however, volunteer the fact that he had holy bread, show bread as it's called otherwise at various places in the Scriptures. And he made the offer that David could take some of that with him if his men had kept themselves from women. That is to say, if they had known no sexual relations in some period of time. As the priest made that respectful word in verses 3, 4, and 5, he noticed that the statement in it thus led David to make his own appeal. As David heard what the priest said, he replied by making a petition that in fact the men had not only kept themselves from women, but that the vessels themselves were holy, and therefore that they were at least entitled to a portion of that holy bread. 
the priest apparently was persuaded, at least in some sense, by that, and thus he gave to David some of that showbread, and not only that, but also gave him the sword of Goliath that had been maintained there ever since the defeat of Goliath. With that, we notice that chapter 21 rather rapidly closes with the following interesting episode. With that bread and with that spear in hand, that sword, if you please, of Goliath, David, of course, proceeds to flee elsewhere. And in verses 10 through 15, he came to a Philistine region known as Gath. That was one of the five major Philistine cities. And as David came to this location, he was recognized. After all, he had been the one only a few chapters earlier that had defeated Goliath, the famous Philistine champion. When they saw him, they recognized him. In fact, you'll notice very interestingly that David then proceeded to develop a rather odd behavior because they recognized him as the one who had defeated Goliath. He pretended to be insane. He let scrabble or drool fall, run down his face. He, in fact, acted very unusually and strangely, and in his pretense of insanity, they, of course, paid little attention to him and allowed him to proceed on his way. You'll notice as chapter number 22 opens, after his rather brief stay, it would seem, in Gath, that does bring us to the following statements at the top of this slide. David fled to a region wherein was a cave, and this was a dullum. And as chapter 22 opens, a rather remarkable set of events transpired. You and I might do well to keep in mind again that Saul was out to get David. He desired to kill him. He desired to remove him from this earth. He desired to take his life, despite the fact that David had done nothing to him. David had not tried to harm him. David had not tried to remove from him by force the empire that had been Saul's. David had not, in fact, done anything to enlist the enemy character of Saul toward him. It's just, of course, that God had been with David. He had slain his ten thousands, but Saul only his thousands. David had been victorious, of course, over Goliath. And what's more, in a few chapters earlier, God had already decreed that Saul had been rejected and that one better than he had been selected to replace him. In light of all of that, at Adullam, the following interesting thing took place. We notice that many began to come to be with David. I say many. These were especial ones who were downtrodden, those that were outcast, those that were overlooked, somewhat the ones less characteristic. In that regard, the more uncomely ones were the ones that were attracted to David. And so it was that as this chapter opened, they came to support and to be with him. You'll notice that one of the next statements, David even had concern for the well-being of his own parents. And so he urged them and in fact conveyed them to Moab, wherein they might dwell in safety in that distant location. It is interesting that beginning in verse number 9, information was conveyed to Saul. Information that David was at, had been at Nob. Remember, in the last chapter, chapter 21, we learned that there was where Ahimelech had been. There is where David had been given the sword of Goliath. There is where he had been given the showbread. 
But remember, on that occasion, there was someone else there that witnessed that transaction involving the showbread and also witnessed the other things. This person who happened to witness it was an Edomite named Doeg. He was apparently somewhat loyal to Saul's cause. And the time came here in chapter 22, he conveyed to Saul that I have seen David at Nob. And not only that, the priests there actually sustained him. They encouraged him and provided him with supplies. Upon hearing that news, Saul then had all the priests, especially Himelech, brought from Nob to the capital city. And there he questioned him. He inquired of him. He asked if those things were so. Was David there? Did you supply him with matters? Did you in fact encourage him in ways? And we might take interest that the priest in fact agreed that David had been there, things had been supported, the things were done that had been told to Saul. Needless to say, Saul was angry. He was furious because he read into that that this group of priests and this group of people at Nob were loyal to David and in thus were guilty of conspiracy against him. Because of that, his decision was that they needed to be slain. At this point, he gave commandment to his officers to kill all those priests and there were 85 of them gathered. Those men were unwilling to do it. However, Saul would not relent and would not change his mind. And so it was that he in fact told Doeg, who was there, you do it. On that occasion, Doeg took the liberty, shall we say, of in fact slaying and putting to death 85 of the priests of Nob. What an amazing thing to now look at where Saul has come. When we first saw him back in chapter 9, a very noble young man one who was not only handsome, but one who had been selected as the first king of Israel. He was noble, he was goodly, he was righteous at that point. But look at what a tailspin he has followed, and what a downward spiral he now has traveled. That one who started so, first became presumptuous, and then became jealous, and now guilty of murder, putting to death the very priests of God. Surely, at least in that, we notice that an individual can change his mind. And one who at one time was lofty and noble came to be wicked and evil. In fact, the given matter concerning Saul will even see later in this book other issues related somewhat to this one. You might also notice as we come near the bottom of that slide, one final thing in the last four verses of chapter 22 point us to one other episode involving David. Once those priests were slain, David's heart was filled with grief. It was filled with compassion and it was filled with sorrow because he read into that that he had at least been partially responsible for what had happened to them. Had he never come to Nob, had he never asked for those supplies, had he never been partially deceptive the way he was, maybe those priests would have been still living. David was very sorrowful for the role he played and the part that he had in the death of those priests. And with that, the curtain closes on 1 Samuel 22. We have but two more chapters remaining as our youngsters are studying, and it will be to those chapters that will turn our attention next Sunday evening. For now, what might we say in terms of some lessons extracted from chapters 20, 21, and 22 of the book of 1 Samuel? Indeed, there are many things that might be listed. 
However, I have chosen these very few. The first one, it seems to me, centers from chapter number 20 in the following regard, in the following way. Consider with me again for just a moment that episode concerning Saul. As we've noted so easily so far, Saul was beside himself when the time for the celebration came and David's place was empty. David wasn't there, and not once but two consecutive days. With David's absence, Saul questioned Jonathan, Where is David? Saul knew that he was not there. As that conversation developed, Saul noted a degree of conspiracy even in his son. Why are you concealing and why are you taking up for and why are you in fact seemingly on David's side? Jonathan, Saul basically said, Are you not aware that the kingdom is yours? I am on the throne now and as my son it will be yours. That was the way that Saul felt about it. And not only that, all of the empire could in fact be his. Saul was very shocked, surprised, and angry that Jonathan would in fact befriend David and that he would in fact try to understand his ways and be a friend and encourager to him. You'll notice that Jonathan seemingly had a degree of peacefulness in mind and so too did David, but Saul didn't. We seemingly see a man, and isn't it a bit ironic? David pretended to be insane at one point in these chapters, but Saul was the one who was so troubled and agitated. He was the one who was unable to rest. He was the one that would not be satisfied chasing David all over the countryside, from south to north and back again, trying to take the life of one who was not his enemy to start with. Who really was the one that was in some sense insane? Was it not Saul's behavior? Was it not his ungodly attitude and his, the nature of the actions that he brought forth? I would invite all of us, at least for a moment, to reflect on something in that for you and me. I realize that with the hectic character of life as it is sometimes in your life and mine, things that cloud our day and fill our week to the point that we live in a frenetic, chaotic, unsettled, unpeaceful fashion. God never intended that to be the lot of your life and mine. He never intended life to be filled with such intranquility as that. He understood and desired that you and I, like the Savior, would know very well the following. In Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, the last two verses of that rather noble major prophet's book, Isaiah was told by God on that occasion to pen these words. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And then the next verse is the icing on that cake. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. What took place in the days of Isaiah, the nature of the unsettled character in the minds of those that were wicked, the unsettled features and understandings in the minds of those that were so agitated and bothered, it was that that led to the nature of what was their problem. Today, I might suggest that something at least parallel to that can be a great problem to us. When we allow our life to be so filled with the things of the earth, be it our work, be it the issues of the community, be it matters like that, and all the while, 
squeeze God out of our life. We shall pay for that in time because we will become unsettled. We will become less than tranquil. And the peace that ought to fill our life will be replaced with hectic freneticism in such a way that only a difficulty will, will in fact abide. Jesus said in John 16.33 as well as John 14.27, he spoke these words now to apostles that the very next day would watch Him crucified. The very next day would watch Him in such a beleaguered and terrible state of affairs. They would watch Him tried later that night. They would watch the nails driven in His hands the next day. And all the while, I'm sure they remembered Him saying, My peace I leave with you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. He wished for them to have peace. He knew they would not acquire that from the world, for the world only brings tribulation, John 16, Today, 20 centuries have come and gone. Much, however, is the same, isn't it? By virtue of the influence of that old crafty devil, the subtlety and the craftiness with which he operates, he too will again strive to bring nothing but lack of peacefulness. Didn't Paul say in Philippians 4, 11, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Here was a man who had the opportunity to accomplish much from the standpoint of the world. Did he not say in Galatians 1 verses 12 and 13 that I had advanced far above those that were my equals? However, Paul chose to relinquish all of that and simply be an humble servant of the Lord dedicated to the peacefulness that only God could offer. He said, did he not, in Philippians 3, verses 11 through 13, in particular nature, that he had left what was behind and he pressed forward to what was ahead. What was it he was reaching for? I pressed toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The particular statement of verse 14 of that same chapter. You'll notice that among other verses I've asked you to consider, we have, of course, the opportunity to recall time and again that the closing chapter of the Hebrew letter put it like this, I will not leave thee nor forsake thee. The Lord had made statements like that to His apostles shortly before His ascension to glory in Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20. But we notice here that statement of promise is echoed through the centuries for all of those that would be His faithful believers and followers. I, He said will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And yet this is the same one who while the storm was raging in Mark the fourth chapter, he was asleep on a pillow. What kind of peace is there in that? You and I often see a world so filled with what is stormy, what is so often difficult and hard on the nerves. But yet, if our faith is in the hollow of the hand who can well take care of all of it, can you and I not also appreciate the faithfulness, the comfort, and the ease that can be ours? Surely what a great comfort there is in that remarkable nature of peace of mind. You'll notice one final thought. Even as death comes our way, and it would seem that the very truths which we studied this morning are the highlights of this consideration knowing that death is a transition into that area of paradise for those that are the faithful followers of God. We do see in Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. 
blessedness in death. That's what the inspired writer penned. You and I can take great comfort in that and use the episode of 1 Samuel 20 as a feature to help us remember that that's important for us today too. Perhaps another lesson takes us to chapter 21. That scenario involving the holy bread, that hallowed bread that we have discussed previously this evening. It was interesting, wasn't it, that here David came without supplies, without the necessary matters, on the run from Saul. Here was a man in dire straits, simply hopeful for some help. The priest, however, didn't have any common bread. All he had at hand was the hallowed bread. He gave some of it to David. You'll notice at the bottom of this slide, as Ahimelech gave that to David, this has in fact been an issue that has been a matter of discussion for many, many years. What took place on this occasion and what was involved as the priest gave that bread to David? Was it lawful for David to take that bread? Was it lawful for the priest to give it to him? Was this something that was in accordance to the law of Moses? Was it right for David to have it? We might also ask what are some other lessons that are involved in the nature of this holy bread and the scene that developed on this occasion. It is in all of that. We notice that the scenario of Leviticus 24 is what plays out before us here. I've highlighted that at the top of this particular slide. In Leviticus 24, beginning in verse 5, we find on that occasion the instructions to the priests as it related to the, to the showbread or to the holy bread. We recall that those instructions were highlighted in ways like this. This particular showbread, we remember, was to be in two rows, each containing six loaves, and it was placed on that table of showbread which was in the holy place of the tabernacle. It was to remain there for seven days, but it was to be changed every Sabbath. On that Sabbath, the priest was to take that bread that had been there for the previous week and replace it with new bread, fresh bread if you please. We might at this point take note that that old bread, the one that just had served as the showbread, was to then be taken. And Leviticus 24 expresses it that the priests were to eat it in the holy place. We notice in light of that, that that leads us to these conclusions. The priest, we might remember, on this occasion had said to David, You may take it if your men have kept themselves from women. If they were, in fact, such that they had not participated in that sexual kind of activity, but had, in fact, remained clean, at least in that regard. And in that way, that was his only condition that he had placed on this showbread. At this point, might we ask the following? Again, the question, was it lawful for David to take it? Was it lawful for the priest to give it to him? Perhaps the Lord has something to say on this matter, for this episode is recounted not once but twice in the New Testament. As we look, for instance, at Matthew, the 12th chapter, we find Jesus, in fact, recalling this episode. Maybe in light of the words of the Son of God, He would shed a tremendous light upon that which took place here. We find not only in Matthew 12, but also in Mark, the 4th chapter, the same kind of events, I'm sorry, Mark, the 2nd chapter, the same kind of event is therein recorded. As we look at what the Lord stated, He made it rather abundantly clear. It was not lawful for David to have it. 
Jesus, in fact, expressly said, which was not lawful. And thus, the Lord didn't make any pretenses or try to excuse the behavior of David. It was not lawful for David to have it. We, however, would not be too surprised at that thought because, again, in Leviticus 24, it had been said that the priests only were to partake of it, and only then in the location of the holy place. Notice that David was not of the tribe of Levi. David was of the tribe of Judah. Therefore, he was not a priest. He could not have been of the sons of Aaron. And we notice immediately then that it is not possible to excuse David's behavior on that account. One of the other things, though, that comes from that discussion is the Lord's usage of it. And that usage, of course, has a great lesson for you and me today. It highlights the matter of inconsistency. The scene that had led to the Lord's usage of that passage was this. Jesus' disciples were walking through the grain, and we noticed that they were, had plucked some of the grains and therein had used it in their hands and thus ate of it. The, those Pharisees quickly accused the Lord's disciples of violating the Sabbath, and because of that, they condemned them, in fact stated that they were guilty. It was on that occasion that Jesus brought up this episode. Jesus, in essence, quickly said, What about David? Was he justified in doing what he did? At this point, we might use this to remind us of the importance of inconsistency. The Pharisees, you see, were being inconsistent. They accused the Lord's disciples of violating the Sabbath. But however, they were quick to justify David in what he did. They saw no evil, no error, no sin whatsoever in David. But yet they condemned Jesus' disciples. There was the inconsistency. And the Lord pointed it out to them ever so clearly. Not only did He make notice of this, but then He turned around and asked them, What about the priests? The Sabbath was the busiest day of the week for them. Do they not work on the Sabbath? And yet you condemn my disciples. The Lord saw through their ploy. He attacked them very clearly and presented them an argument which they were unable to answer. It's at this point you and I might be very careful in our usage of all the things of the Scriptures as well. And may we never rely on what's inconsistent. For those whom we teach or those with whom we speak may see right through our inconsistency and thus ask us, well, why then do you do that? Or why do you support this while you condemn the other? All the while, inconsistency is a very difficult matter for us to defend, isn't it? You'll notice in this inconsistency, many passages, of course, could be mentioned as it relates to this Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, to quote Mark 2.27. And isn't it true that Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, the interesting feature, abstain from all appearance of evil. The interesting thing is, that came right after this statement, prove all things, hold to that which is good. May you and I then desire never to be guilty of inconsistency, but to prove all things and to cleave to truly what's good. Those Pharisees of Jesus' day were caught on their inconsistency. May we in wisdom never find ourselves in that lot, but also to find ourselves perhaps as we come near the bottom of that slide. I mentioned earlier that David was very well aware that he himself had had a part to play in all this. 
as he had gone to Nob, and there he had been somewhat deceptive in his words to Ahimelech. And yet that ultimately led to the deaths of 85 of those priests. David, seemingly with a heart of compassion, reminds us it would appear that David was forgiven of that later as he himself repented of it, as we read in Psalms. Perhaps all of that brings us to one final lesson of the evening. Lesson number three. This one taken from the 22nd chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. Mention is made in verse number 5 of this chapter of a man named Gad. Now earlier we saw Gad was in fact one of the sons of Jacob, but this now was a different Gad. Several centuries intervened between those times. This particular Gad was a prophet. Verse number 5 says, And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Horeth. Gad was one of those little-known individuals. We read about them every now and then on the landscape of the Old Testament. There were some well-known prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and many of the others. But there were also some lesser-known individuals who have impacted in a dramatic way the history of this world. Think about the effect of individuals like Gad and Nathan. These individuals who again weren't mentioned all that often, but yet they impacted mightily the faithfulness of those who were members of the fold and family of God on that occasion. And of course, they had a critical part to play in making preparation for the ultimate feature of bringing into the world the greatest one of all, preserving a people, and through them, of course, the Christ would finally be born. These individuals like Nathan and like Gad did have a remarkable role to play. Notice the power inherent in their office, though they aren't mentioned much. Here we find Gad who had the nerve to come before David and in some sense give him commandments. Later he will in fact rebuke David, the same man Gad. Think about the king, the highest position in civil authority on earth, and yet these prophets had the nerve and the gall to rebuke them, to call them on the carpet, if you please, and to give them direct commandments that you've erred, you've sinned, you have in fact become guilty. Perhaps that takes us back to chapter 8 of this same book. On that occasion, the people said, "'Give us a king that we may be like the nations.'" God granted the request and allowed them to appoint a king. However, God sent the prophets to rebuke the kings. He sent the prophets to correct them and to let the people know that there is a prophet among the people and that you are still subject to what God says and not merely to what the king decrees. Isn't it still true we ought to obey God rather than men? To quote Acts 5.29, these prophets in part remind us of the power and the wonder that went along with God's working among His people because it was through the prophets that God in fact made known what His will was and the instructions that the people were to follow. It may be that there's no better place that that's highlighted than in the first of the minor prophets, the prophet Hosea. In Hosea chapter 12 verse number 10, we read so clearly that God said that by my prophets... I have given instruction to the people. God, in fact, spoke through those prophets. Isn't that what the Hebrew writer reminded us in Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1? 
God, who at sundry times and in divers' manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. And with that, what a great way to conclude our lesson this evening. We, of course, live in a day when the greatest prophet of all has come. Jesus the Christ, the perfect Son of God. Tonight, as we've learned these brief lessons, we've seen one more time David is in dire straits and on the run he has been. Chapters 23 and 24 will not change that much. We will find, though, that David does exemplify that peace of mind of which we've spoken. And he is able to, in fact, speak to his own servants about preserving Saul's life, the very one who has been trying to take his own. That, no doubt, took a great deal of mental stability. What about your peace of mind tonight? And what about the lessons of inconsistency we saw in the showbread? And finally... What about the lessons we've seen in chapter 22, the great work of the prophets of God? This evening, as you and I examine our own lives and our own selves, we are admonished ever to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. What does the examination show in your life and in mine tonight? Are all things well or is there a spiritual problem? The plan of salvation, Christ Jesus came to set forth. He Himself taught about the need for belief in John 8, 24. He Himself set forth the need for repentance in Luke 13, 5. He Himself spoke of the requirement of confession in Matthew 10, 32. And He Himself spoke about the need for baptism in Mark 16, 16. We find the later New Testament writers echoed those same thoughts. Today, we hold high the same plan of salvation. Have you attended to that need in your life? Have you, in fact, given honest and humble submission to the requirements of all of that? If so, you know that your sins were washed away and you became a member of the body of Christ. Have you been faithful to that calling? That calling is a noble and high calling, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. If you haven't been noble to it, come back to your first love this very night. If we, in some one of those two ways, could be of assistance to you tonight, we'd be honored to assist we'd be honored to help. All of eternity for you would be altered and changed at this very time. If we could help you tonight, won't you let us know in the way we could and do so in haste while together we stand and while we sing.